Good morning. My name is Trey. I am the uh, minister to students in grades 7 through 12 here at First Baptist. We are glad that y'all are here. Um, I know last week looked a little bit different. We were streaming live on Facebook for um, those of you who were sheltering in place and for those of you who were sheltering elsewhere. And so we appreciate you joining us via whatever means that you can. And so we are continuing on in our, in our series, Strangers Like me as we walk through First Peter. Taylor has walked us through most of uh, the first three chapters, and we will actually be closing out the third chapter this week as we look at what does it look like for a believer in Christ to be a stranger in a world that we were not really made for. We were made for things that are eternal. And so what does it look like as we not only um, interact with each other, but as we interact with a world in which we are all strangers in? And so we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 13 through 22. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. There will be um, the um, ESV on the screen, and then uh, we will have the NIV um, in the pews. And so just follow um, along with me as we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. And it reads, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Now, we're going to flip around a little bit towards the start here. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in Proverbs and a little bit of time in Isaiah. So if you would like to go ahead and put your finger in that part of the book to flip there quickly, I don't want to go too fast for you. But the first thing I want us to look at is in verse 13 here, he asks a question. And that question is, who is there to harm you? And that's a very important question question because a lot of times when we are going through suffering, when we are walking through a trial, when we are experiencing hardship in our life, we can easily identify the enemies because they're all around us, right? Everything is against us. Everyone is against us when we are suffering a lot of times. It's very easy for us to readily identify who the enemies are. And so if you'll turn with me to Proverbs uh, chapter 16, verse 7, um, it reads, 
when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And this is part of the context that Peter is working with as he writes this letter is that when we are emulating the ways of the Lord, that flips the script on even how our enemies can view us. That's a power that we don't work with on our own. That is a power that only comes from God and it carries with it quite a bit. And so making even our enemies at peace, we tend to not really find peace easily when we are in a crisis, when we are going through a hardship, when we are suffering. Most of us would not use the word peace to describe where we are with it. This is also something that um, the Old Testament uh, people of g- people of g- God struggled with. In Isaiah chapter eight, the people of Judah are surrounded by the evil king of Israel and his allies, and they have seen the d- destruction that these armies have have wrought on their way to the capital of Judah, and they are with the full understanding that they are about to be surrounded. And even if the Lord gives them victory, which Isaiah has already prophesied, even if what the Lord says is true, they're still looking at losing a whole lot of people and a lot of destruction. And so they are still afraid. They are filled with fear. And so Isaiah speaking with the words of the Lord in chapter 8, verses 12 and 13 says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Now, as an adult who was at one time a kid who got into a whole lot of trouble, I read that last line in kind of the context of, oh, I'll give you something to be afraid of. Now, granted, in this context, obviously we have the Lord saying it in in the most holy and more of a reverent fear there. And just in case anybody's doing a little retroactive judging of any fear that may have been placed on me um, um, in my household, most of that fear was mainly that the consequences at school or church would far not measure up to the consequences that I felt at home. So I definitely had a reverent and healthy fear of consequences that might be happening in my household there. But the Lord is telling his people not to put stock in their enemies, but instead to put the fear where it needs to be, and that is with him. And in the verse that follows that, the Lord is described as their sanctuary, as their place of refuge. And so when we find ourselves in a place of fear, when we find ourselves in a place where we are afraid, the Lord wants us to find our refuge in him, not be so fearful and and conscious of the threat of the enemy or the threats around us that we do not place our fear in what it should be placed in. Now, this passage is about suffering. So I want to kind of 
clarify what Peter is talking about here when he is referring to suffering. His audience is uh, members of the New Testament church who have either in the past, they have been persecuted, they have suffered for doing the Lord's work. They are either presently suffering, they might be jailed or uh, looking at some sort of um, impending torture or um, execution, or they may be looking at in the future being persecuted. And so he is writing to people who talk about suffering in the past, present, and future tense, expecting that it will come. And this is righteous suffering that he is primarily talking about here. Now, I know a lot of us, uh, maybe it's just me, but I can think about a lot of suffering that has happened in my life because of choices that I have made, and there have been negative consequences as a result of that, and that might place me in a little bit of a negative situation in which I feel like I am suffering, but that is not the righteous suffering that Peter is talking about here. He is talking about the righteous suffering from potentially an potentially an unjust um, authority. He's already addressed in the previous chapter, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you um, endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, even though the other kind of suffering is not the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about. It is still suffering. And regardless of what kind of suffering we are talking about, it is not outside of the power of God's plan for our lives. There's nothing that we can do to circumvent God's plan for our lives. There's no choice that we can make that somehow God says, oh man, he stumped me on that one. There's nothing that we can do to circumvent that God can use us, God can use trials and suffering of any kind to bring about his glory. I know many of us probably have um, examples of both in our lives, but this is the kind of suffering that he is talking about here. Now, a lot of times in my life, uh, I have looked back on things and said, man, hindsight 2020. If you spend much time um, around me, a lot of times I can rush into things and I end up turning around and saying, ooh, hindsight 2020 on that one. And um, a lot of times we do have a much clearer view of a situation after we have come out of it. We have a much clearer understanding of a particular season of our life once we have come out of that season. But one of the things that Peter emphasizes here is that we need to look for blessings in the midst of suffering. The years of like 2015, 2016 for uh, myself and my um, immediate family, I think for me personally, reframed what I thought hardship was, what I thought suffering was, what I thought of as hard. And as we, as we kind of moved through 2015, moved through 2016, and we were um, getting to the end of 2016, my mom had this creative brainwave, which for anybody who spent much time um, around her is probably like, wait, what? She had a, some sort of creative um, idea there. So she had this creative idea to write down um, all of the ways month by month that we had seen the Lord work in our lives. And so, but it wasn't just any writing of these things down. We were going to paint them on rocks. And so I thought, 
Some of you might be thinking, that is such a cool idea. Raise that Ebenezer, you know, it's great. And um, all that I thought was, oh man, arts and crafts, you know. And so to not lose the strength of the exercise, she wrote hers on rocks, we wrote ours on paper, but the exercise was still there. So by the end of it, we had feet and feet of these poster boards of all of these instances of ways that we had seen the Lord work, the Lord bless us in ways that we had not um, expected it. We were um, able to identify things that we were able to see in the moment, in the middle of the suffering. And then also with a little bit of hindsight, we were able to maybe see some patterns or some things that he had been working out that maybe in the moment we were not able to see his handiwork in it at at that moment. But in the cases of those, we had that hindsight 2020. So we had a mix of things that we saw in the moment and things that we saw at the end. We were in um, Alaska about a month ago, and we had about 18 hours of, d- 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 of daylight every day. So we had a full day of work most of the time, and then we would spend our evenings, which were just as bright as every other part of the day. Um, we would spend our evenings hiking and um, exploring some of the things that um, Alaska had to offer. So on one of our hikes, the trail that we were on, it wasn't too steep, but there was some, there was some, there was some snow on it. There was mud, and so it wasn't the most pleasant walk ever. And so we get past this point that is especially snowy, especially muddy, and one of the students kind of turns, and there's this way to get up to where, where we are heading that's a little bit steeper. It's, um, it's not a path, but it doesn't look like there's much snow or mud. And so he says, I think that way is probably going to be a little bit quicker. Probably famous last words in a whole lot of ways. But so we look up and like you kind of have to tilt your head a little bit because it was a little bit steeper. There was probably a reason that it wasn't the actual trail. But, you know, high schoolers were like, absolutely. And so I was like, all right, none of the other adults? All right, I guess I'm going. So we go up this off-trail walk there, and I realized almost immediately I had made a terrible, terrible mistake because it was hard. And I I wasn't in the back, but I also definitely wasn't in the front. And the people who were in the front, I was like, oh, man, they are like mountain mountain goats just climbing this thing. And so... I'm just kind of slugging it up. I'm going like step, 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 rest, look at kind of what's coming up, step, 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 rest. So as I keep on slugging up this thing, I'm breathing heavy. Asthma's kicked in a long time ago. And I'm just like, man, (laughs) I don't know if this was worth it. So I turn around and there were all these smaller peaks. And so when we were at the ground level, we were just looking up at these smaller peaks. But at the point that we were, we were kind of starting to see over these peaks. And so we kind of start to see a glimpse of the um, coastline. And, and it was just this beautiful view. And so as we climb up and as I'm taking my many, many rest breaks, I am seeing that view become more beautiful and more beautiful as we went up. And so we actually weren't able to make it all the way to the top. There was actually a snow, uh, snowy portion that we had not seen again because it was steep. And so... At the point that we stopped, we had this awesome view of this Alaskan coastline of a fjord, and it was amazing. And there were pieces of it on the way up. Now, had I not 
turned around at some point in that hike and seen the views that were coming, there's a good chance I probably would have just hung out right there and waited for everybody else to come down. There's even a chance I might have turned around. I don't really know. But when I knew that there was that view coming, because I was starting to get little glimpses of it on, on my walk up, that really helped me keep on moving. And a lot of times in our lives, when we are walking through hardship, when we are walking through suffering, we can get so focused on making it through that we're not looking around for the ways that God is moving and we're not looking um, around for the ways that God is working through maybe what we are walking through. And so having that eternal perspective is so important because we wanna make sure that our eyes are focused on Jesus and we wanna make sure that we focus on the right thing, but don't make the mistake of having those eyes up so that you're not looking around at how the Lord is moving in the people around you and in your particular situation. And you never know how much of a witness your situation will be to others until you look around you. Peter closes out this passage by drawing a parallel to really the ultimate example of what it looks like to suffer. He points us to Jesus and he points us to the saving power that suffering can have. Now, in the midst of suffering, we typically don't really associate peace with that. We don't really associate thriving with suffering. In fact, in verse 15, uh, the word for suffering in verse 15 um, isn't quite the same word that's used um, um, in the other parts of the passage. In fact, it can be translated as death because it's talking about Jesus whose suffering eventually led to that. Now, in VBS this week, we looked at amazing encounters with Jesus. We looked at all of the amazing encounters that people had with Jesus throughout his ministry and throughout his life. And so we looked at, on one of the days, Jesus's encounter with John the Baptist. And we looked at Jesus's baptism as a model for us. And so I asked our group, I said, hey, was there anything special about the water in the Jordan River? Or is there anything special about the water in our baptistry? And we got a few holy water answers. We got a few, there's nothing special answers. We got a few, there's got to be something in that water. I just don't know what it is answers. And we talked about how the water that Jesus was baptized in was river water that was running by. We talked about how the water that we use to baptize is just regular water, very similar to the water that probably comes out of the shower head that you take at home. And so unless anybody's taking very spiritually transformative showers every morning, that's probably, there's nothing special about that water. And so Peter is pointing us here because he even had to point the people that he was writing to, to this. That water is not just for cleansing away dirt, but it is an incredible picture of what the Lord has done in our lives if we are saved. And so Peter is pointing out righteous suffering, baptism, those aren't things that save you. Avoiding suffering, that doesn't save you. Doing good things, that doesn't save you. 
What does save you is the belief in the truth and power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then that draws us to obedience in every other aspect of our lives. Baptism, suffering well, whatever that looks like for you, that belief in the truth and power of Jesus is what points us to obedience. It's not the obedience of those particular acts that save us. And that is what Peter's making sure that his people understand, is that just because they suffer, that is not what saves them. Because at at this point in the church's history, potentially suffering was becoming a little bit of a trendier thing to do. It's kind of like the social justice topic of the day. And there was a tendency or a chance for people in the church to say, all right, I'm going to go get martyred and then that will save me. And so Peter was making sure that his people were fully understanding that the power of saving comes from Jesus, not from these actions. Solomon tells us there's a time for absolutely everything under the sun. There is a time to weep. There is a time to laugh. There is a time to dance. There is a time to sit still. There is a time to stop. There is a time to go. There is a time to suffer and there is a time to rest. But regardless of what time we find ourselves in, we are called to be obedient in that time and we are called to point others to Jesus through it. It can be very easy to take those times of rest and say, I'll point others to Jesus once something else happens, but this is my rest time. It can be very easy to suffer and say, I just need to make it through this, and then I can start living out my, my faith. But I just need to make it through this. Your witness sometimes is never more powerful than when we are at our weakest. We sometimes are able to see God work in the biggest ways when we are at our weakest. So take advantage of those times. Peter is pointing to righteous suffering as a blessing, which is a little counterintuitive to how we view suffering, but he flips the script on that for us. Now, I know all of us in the room here know how to weather a a hurricane, right? We've got a couple of different methods and techniques, right? We can either hunker down, shelter in place, whatever you call it. We can evacuate until the coast is clear. And those are great for a hurricane. But we cannot apply those methods to Christian living. Christian living was never intended to be a hunker down, shelter in place, evacuate until the coast is clear kind of life. We were never called to have the best, driest hurricane generator-powered hurricane party of our lives while we feel some sympathy for those outside who are wet. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is getting in the muck and the mess of others suffering and helping them walk through it and letting others walk through suffering with you. It is looking for God's power in the midst of, of our powerlessness. Hunkering down is easy. Living in the mess is hard, but it is what believers are called to. Remember that our party, 
our, our reward, our treasure is in heaven. And so while we're here, we are called to embrace the season that God has placed us in and point others to Jesus through it. There's a hymn that really hits this really, really well, and I'm going to close with it. It says, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings and see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Pray, uh, pray, pray with me now, please. Lord, I thank you that you have given us the perfect example of what it looks like to go through suffering. God, I thank you that we are never alone in the storms of life, that, that you have not called us to walk through this life alone. God, that you don't leave us alone at any point, whether it's the strongest storm or the calmest sea, you are with us at all times. God, I thank you that you have created us for relationships with each other and also with you. And I pray for anybody in this room who does not have a relationship with you. Maybe they are suffering right now, God. Maybe they are coming out of a season of suffering. God, I pray that they would feel your presence more than they have ever felt it before. That they would feel your love, that they would feel your power, that they would feel your presence. God, that they would know that you love them and want a relationship with them. God, I thank you for all of the believers in the room who have made that decision to lean on you, whether the storms are calm or the storms are raging. And I pray that if there's anybody in this room who just needs a word of encouragement, I pray that you would open up our church family's eyes and ears to see how your spirit is moving and how maybe we could encourage each other. God, I thank you for who you are and I thank you for who you have created us to be. And I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.